Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Hairball Audio. For nearly a decade, Hairball Audio has been helping musicians and recording studios improve their recordings by offering high-quality outboard recording equipment in do-it-yourself kit form. Check out the full line of compressors, mic preamplifiers, and do-it-yourself parts at hairballaudio.com. Hairball Audio. Do it yourself without compromise. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Sure Legendary Microphones, Cutting Edge Wireless Systems, Premium Earphones and Headphones. Sure, the most trusted audio brand worldwide. For more information, go to Sure.com. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. And I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Diamond God, Meshuggah, Periphery, A Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at NailTheMix.com. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and I am super excited about this episode because on this one I got to talk to one of my very own production heroes. On today is... Man, that really needs no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyways. It's Mr. Frederick Nordstrom, who is a Swedish musician and record producer. He's one of the pioneers of the coveted Gothenburg sound, and he's behind some of the genre's top acts, like Diva Borgir, Architects, Arch Enemy, Dark Tranquility, At the Gates and Flames... Opeth, solo work. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I'm going to quit talking and just get into the episode. Enjoy. Frederick Nordstrom, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, I'm a longtime admirer, and uh, I'll just go ahead and say fanboy of your work. And <laughs> it's a big honor to have you here. Your work is some of the work that inspired me to actually go down this path for better or for worse. So thank you for that. I am wondering, what do you think of the production landscape nowadays as opposed to a decade or two ago? Did you envision it going in this direction? No, not really. Um, Negative-wise, I think it's like for some of this the recording industry has turned into more like a factory than it's actually a place where magic and art happen, if you understand what I mean. Yes. Yes. So there is a little bit of factory thing that is not so fun, I think. But on the other hand, I think like when it's coming to young musicians, many of them are really, really skilled, which I didn't see like back in the 90s, to be honest. It seems like in the 90s, do you remember just trying to get a drummer to play with a click track? Or metronome was sometimes like, you know, asking them to kill a family member. Like they 
mostly didn't want to do it or they're very, very scared of it. Now it's like finding a drummer who doesn't play like that is what's rare. Yeah, I actually recorded an album three weeks ago uh, with no click track and it, we ended up mixing with 100% acoustic drums. How did it turn out? Great. It's very organic. I'm sure. That's, yeah. Actually, the, like my breakthrough album, The Slaughter of the Soul with At The Gates, is recorded without click track because Adrian couldn't play to click track. So, you know, the thing that's interesting to me is that I've never thought that it's necessarily a judgment of whether or not the recording is going to be better or worse because I actually think that there's a lot of benefit to recording without a click. And I think that there's something about those records from the 90s that were recorded without a click. There's a reason for why they connect with people a lot more. And I think that it's because the tempos and the feel are so much more natural. They hit human emotion much more naturally, I guess, than an invented tempo. Yeah, you may be right with that. But, you know, using the click track in the studio makes so much benefits for production. Yes. But, yes, I myself be sitting there, as you talked about it just yesterday, where I'm sitting and keeping my remote control to my two-inch tape recorder between my legs and just, like, be on my toes all the time, just to be prepared to punch in on the exactly right spots. So, yeah, it was different back then. And, uh, like, the perfect tempo and everything you get from having the click track also, maybe, as you say, reduce the interest for people to listen to the songs i don't know i feel like there's a marriage of click track and feel that you can get through changing the click within the song um you know from part to part or sometimes within a part uh to mimic that change of feel but i really do think that one of those things that those older records have is, you know, it goes to this new part that's a lot more intense and it speeds up or it goes to this dramatic part and it slows down uh, to make it that much more dramatic. That stuff is really important, really, really important. And you don't get it with, you know, if you keep to one tempo in a song. No, that's right. That's absolutely right. I never actually think about that. Maybe it's like because... The album is recorded without the click track. Yeah, and you're right. I remember when we were recording back in the 90s, click track was <laughs> rarely something we used. And drummers were afraid of it. I mean, so I wasn't recording pro bands back in the 90s. I was, you know, exiting high school and thinking about how I would get anything going in my life. But I remember I was trying to find drummers for my band back then, and... I wanted someone who could play to a metronome because I wanted to have backing tracks. Um, and the idea of finding a drummer who could play to a metronome, it was, it was, I couldn't find one anywhere near me. I had to find someone that lived 500 miles away and convince him to move near me. And it was just, it was close to impossible. And I know that if I was 19 years old today, I wanted to start a band. I wanted a drummer who played to a metronome and we could do backing tracks and all that stuff. I could find 50 people near me. Yeah. It's it's just a different different time period. You know what's interesting? So you brought up at the gates and not doing that to a click. What's interesting is that 
those of us who heard that record were blown away by how tight it was. But that was the whole idea with that album. It's like we had a pre-production meeting and I talked to the band. And for me, it was also a big step in my sound engineer career because I get my hands off my 24-track, 2-inch tape recorder. I was recording to 16 tracks, 1 inch before. And this was a heavy machine. It's like 244 kilos. Wow. Yeah, and a lot, of, a lot of money. And that was the demand from the band that I should have 24-track in the studio. And the idea with the album is it to sound like a machine. So we were 100% sure that we're going to record this to click track. But Adrian, he couldn't manage to follow like <laughs> two bars maybe. And then he was <laughs> lost. And he said, I cannot do this. So we decided to make the drums super tight. And it's punched in and punched in. And I promise you, it was a hard work just to nail the drums. And then we were doing the same with the guitars. And then I think like three weeks have passed, and, or maybe four. And we did the bass during a couple of days. Wait, wait, wait. Did you say three or four weeks just to do the rhythm guitars? And drums. Okay. Yeah, that was a long time back then, actually, to be honest. The most of the Inflames albums are recorded in two weeks, mixed also. Holy shit. I mean, that's fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So more or less back in the 90s, from beginning of 90s to middle of the 90s, I recorded more or less 24 albums per per year. So wow, it was it's crazy. The punk album we record, we normally record them in five days, including mixing. You know, there's some producers now that... Uh, you know, who've been on this podcast are doing very well, who record that fast, like sometimes like uh, Kurt Ballou, for instance, but it's a totally different style. I mean, I, I definitely know people who now record, who say that they can do five days or 10 days and it is what it is, but they're not doing the style of music that you got known for. It actually blows my mind to hear that you did these melodic death metal records in two weeks. That's yes. crazy. Horacle was like, uh, with the flames was th- there we actually asked for one extra week wow so three weeks instead of two yes slaughter of the soul was my first big production there we spent six weeks so what i think is really really interesting is so you built that one piece by piece through punch-ins but it's interesting how that led to this trend of people recording to a click and editing everything together because they wanted to be as tight as the at the gates record yes (laughs) i remember everything was looking back to that at the gates record as this is the standard it needs to be this tight but it's impossible to actually be this tight so um you know that's where the whole i feel like in metal that's where the whole you know punching in two notes and then three notes and then editing those notes together that whole thing came from trying to match the at the gates record which was actually performed it was performed yes but adrian did a hell of a work with the drumming and he also developed a new technique for the two beats which uh, because i was like i want when you play two beats i want a hard hit on the snare drum because triggering and stuff like that like that back then for me at least didn't work so well so i want to make sure that i had a good acoustic drum sound so uh, he developed a technique where every time he should hit on the snare drum, he lift his right arm straight up so he gets space in between the arm to hit the snare drum hard. And it looked weird when he played drums, but he always had a consistent hard hit on the snare drum. And 
Anders Bjöller, the twins, Bjöller twins, they are, especially Anders, he's a downstroke machine. He is a brilliant guitar player for rhythm guitars. Hold on, uh, about this drum technique. So he was doing that even on the very fast beats? Yes. It's hard to explain how he looks. It looks like he was kind of swimming or something. <laughs> What I'm trying to imagine is how high up did his arm go? He lifted up his, uh, what's called, elbow. Mm -hmm. He lifted up more or less over his head. Okay. To get space to hit the snare drum hard. Wow, he must have really been moving. Yes, yes, yes. And he was sweating, I promise you. I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah, it was like a full hockey team had been changing clothes after a match every time we passed that room. So, And we had to do that a couple of times. (laughs) How many hours per day could he sustain that for i think we went on 10 12 hours days because one of the things about that record that i remember people couldn't understand was how the snare sounded so consistent and everyone was convinced that it was a fake snare it's not but it didn't sound fake but we didn't understand how it could possibly be so consistent that fast if we're talking about the gear i used i had a mackie 3282 console. I had a pair of GBL speakers, not Hanoi, uh, some 8-inch stuff. I had a Clark Technique stereo compressor. I had two DBX 160X compressors. I had a Behringer composer as a master compressor. And the mastering studio did nothing with the master I sent to them. They just took the dot uh, tape I sent to them and just printed straight to the CD. <laughs> you can see it if you take in that album into your door and you take a modern album and take it in, and you will see it's actually not limited. Interesting. Yeah, so it's have a lot. And you also will notice there is no bass guitar, more or less, because Jonas was so tired of complaining on his bandmates <laughs> that they should play better. So he was kind of passed out when it's time for the bass. <laughs> and he was and he was like, bass doesn't matter, you know. That seems to be like a kind of a common thinking back then, in a way, following the, I guess, the influence of Injustice for All. Uh, I feel like there was a time period after the late 80s into the mid 90s where bass kind of took a back seat in metal. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but it's but it's always good to have a good bass performance. Yes, it's uh, it helps a lot. But actually, year 2000, I think it was when we actually built our first real control room. Then we actually heard the bass in the proper way. I was sitting with, you know, shit gear. I had a shit control room. So to hear the bass, I had to go into another room and stand in the corner. Or if I played on a certain volume on a, what you call it, ghetto blaster, yeah, and it didn't distort, then I know it was not too much bass. Because in a, in a crap room, you, it's hard to hear the bass. So when we, 2000, when we built the first proper design control room, it was like, wow, this is bass. <laughs> and then we start to put attention on bass. It just goes to show that you can make great records even if you have a shitty situation. Yes, absolutely. It's like what I say, it's like, it's not the hammer who built the house, it's the carpenter. Absolutely. Yeah. So this tech shit, uh, not shit, but, you know, tech stuff. (laughs) Yeah, people get so, oh, I need this gear to do that. You don't need that gear, just do it. But it's like, listen to the Pink Floyd album. They are amazing. And they didn't have any sample players or anything back then. They, They made what I want. I totally, totally agree. That's one thing that we try to teach our students um, at URM Academy as much as we can. Uh, 
that, you know, it's gear is cool and it's sexy and it's, you know, it's sexy to want all the latest stuff and to use what your hero used. But at the end of the day, the best producers and the best uh, bands don't need that gear to make great records. You could take an amazing producer with an amazing band and give them an M-Box or something and uh, an SM57 and, you know, some shitty drum set and, you know, a crappy guitar and tell them to make a record and they will do something that sounds great because they'll know what to do with it. It's, I mean, obviously it's cool to have nice tools and you put them in a beautiful studio with great gear and great design. That's all the much better, but that's not necessary at all. No, it's not. And uh, yeah, I cannot more more than agree with what you're saying because that's what I believe also. But good tools helps. Of course. I mean, yeah. There, there's there's nothing wrong with it. Absolutely. I mean, we all know that great sources through great gear, with a great producer and all that, that all helps to create a magical product. But I also know plenty of people who you know recorded in a cabin or. I know some people who recorded some vocals at the beach with a M-Box and an SM58, and those vocals ended up going on a record that went number one, and it sounds amazing. And I know, you know, I know so many of these stories of people making great records in really shitty situations that uh, I just think that there's a priority, and the priority is your skills and your ears, and then the gear is second, and the thing is that if you get your skills and your ears to a world-class level and you're making world-class records you'll get the money to be able to buy the gear anyways so the gear will come yes not the other way around necessarily no we actually had a like on a good recording school here in sweden and we went up there and break down some mixes we have done and the teacher said thank you for showing that you can use Pro Tools built-in plugins EQ and Reverb to make an album. Absolutely. Yeah, because there are only kids here talking about, oh, have you seen that new plugin? We need that plugin. They're just talking about the plugins they need. And there is a lot of cool plugins out there, for sure. But, uh, you know, my my favorite EQ is actually Pro Tools built-in EQ. It's really good. (laughs) It works. (laughs) Yes, it does. I love that you're saying that, actually, um, because we get... People asking us all the time, do do I need to pay for all these plugins or what do I need to be able to do this? Or even just when joining Nail the Mix, do I need to have the exact same setup as the instructor to be able to mix this song? I say, no. If you have a DAW, you have everything you need. Every DAW has, uh, has its stock built-in plugins and they're all fine. They are. Like, I mean, the ones in Logic and Cubase are fine too. They They all work. And I've seen so many great mixers take stock plugins and do great things with them that I'm convinced that you could make an entire record without purchasing a single plugin if you wanted to. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Like you say, a Cubase today is tool-wise 10 times better than the one I used when I recorded Slaughter of the Soul, the gallery, and so on, all these old albums. Absolutely. And, yeah, I'm more like... Uh, I'm buying gears, now, plugins now these days when I find something that is unique, if you understand what I yes. mean. Yes. 
I'm the kind of guy that put on a channel strip on a channel, and that's what I work with. So I I used the like SSL 4000 channel strip, and that's can, will go for the whole track. And you can do that. I, I actually encourage people listening to this podcast who don't believe us to try mixing their next song with just channel strips and see what happens. Or may, may, maybe channel strips and one reverb as a send yes. in an aux and see what happens. Challenge yourself to do that. Um, and I know what you mean about new plugins that are unique. Like one that has come in the past two years that a lot of people are loving, but it, that is legitimately great is a plugin called Soothe. Have you ever used it? Yes, I love it. Too. So that's what I mean. I think I'm, I'm assuming that that's what you mean. Plugins like that, that are unlike anything else. And they really do something like you said, unique and very useful. Yes. Yeah. They, you also have like this sound radix stuff. They are yep. like, they're trying not to make a clone out of an old, uh, DBX A compressor. They're not trying to do a clone of a the Red Series from Focusrite. They're actually doing something unique. And using the technology to actually ad- advance the game. Yes. And I used the SSL pl- uh, channel strip that looks best because I, it looks best in my eyes. And yeah, then it sounds best. Because I think it looks best, and I was the same back in the days when I when I had this massive gear behind me. It's like this uh, the rack, you know, with the spaces for over two hundred units, and I bought the Tube Tech compressor because it looked good. I paid four thousand dollars for it because it looked good. I know that it sounds kind of funny what you're saying, but I totally understand because I've thought that there's a link between the way that gear looks and the way that you'll use it. I've thought that for a long time because there's some plugins. I'm not going to name them because I, I'm not going to. But there's some uh, plugin manufacturers who make plugins that audio-wise sound pretty good, but their interface is so ugly that I think that that actually is interfering with their success as a company because people don't want to use it. Um, no. People want to use things that they enjoy looking at. And I actually think that that's one of the reasons that FabFilter are doing well. In addition to the fact that their plugins are really, really good, I think the fact that they're very easy to look at and, you know, it's like, it's like a spa for your eyes almost. I, th- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's part of why they're experiencing so much success. It's a combination of a really good tool, but also it's very easy to look at. Yeah, but it's like I have three different kind of SSL channel strips. One of those are actually from SSL itself. So I, for me, it was like the natural choice. But after listening to it, I didn't like it. And actually, that's one of the few times I used my ears. <laughs> and uh, and then I have an, two other ones. And when I open the middle oldest one, if you are, the, the middle one that I used most before, I, I don't use it anymore because the new one I have lo- looks so much better. And it is probably a little bit better also. But I mean, the middle one I had, I could probably use and get the same result. But the new one looks so much better. So I use it all the time. Well, we get a lot of questions about, should I use this SSL channel strip versus this one versus this one? And it's like, you know what? They're all good. And just use the one you like the best. Except the SSL one. <laughs> I, mean, I think the SSL one is, is very digital in the mid-range. That's the only one I haven't tried, actually. 
Oh, okay, and it has a very nice high end, but the bass control is like I tried it on so many sources, and it feels like they need to recap the channel strip. Do you understand what I mean? It's like yes, yeah, because that's what happened with an analog console when the capacitors go old, it get like bad in the base. And that's the same with that plugin. Maybe they modeled it after a console that needed to be recapped. Maybe, maybe. It's entirely possible. Imagine that, all that work. And uh, <laughs> that's what it comes down to. So back to At The Gates in the late 90s, when you were working on those records, did you imagine that uh, you would be, you know, I feel like it's you... Andy Sneap and Colin uh, Richardson, who kind of defined where metal went, extreme metal for the next, till now almost. Um, did you think that you were working on records that were going to define the next few decades of metal? And would you have believed it if someone told you that? Absolutely not. To be honest, I remember when we were done with the Gates album, I invited my friends, and we like coming from the pop scene. I was a pop guy from the beginning. And uh, I played the Gates album for them in the studio, and they said, this is really good, they said. And then suddenly I get phone calls from around the world that people want to come to record in my studio. And I was, I was like stoked about it because, of, wow, it's just like not, you know, the local guys who's coming here. It's, and then I... Like heard the Inflames guys, oh, we want to sound like them. And then I realized that that album was something special, but it, it took some time before that happened, actually. Oh, how old were you when you made that record? Oh, I was 94, I was probably 24, 25. And I, I have been working in the studio, to be honest, every day, 12, 14 hours, seven days a week. For how many years? Several years. My, I was in a divorce because of I, I, I was never home. And I had two children. I saw my oldest son when around when he was two years old, kind of, first time. Because I was in the studio all the fucking time. Because I was so... I'm going to learn this. That's very interesting to me because one of the things that I think that people who are trying to go into production, really who are trying to go into anything... Uh, where there's a lot of skill involved um, and uncertainty is that they're going to have to spend many, many years just getting good. And then after they are already decent, and I don't even mean great, then they're going to need to spend many, many years just building up a reputation to where they might get an opportunity to work with an artist who is doing something that matters, that will matter. I know a lot of kids that, you know, they want it in the next six months, in the next year, they want to be a big producer. And I, I try to tell them, well, actually think more like five to 10 years and be ready to, th to sacrifice everything for it. Yes, that's correct. Then today it's even harder when you have, there is so many good tools to actually produce a good album by yourself in your home while you're there so like my job is not that wanted as it was for 20 years ago so it's going to be even harder for young kids to actually you know make a career out of that i think that what it will do is it's a lot easier to be mediocre now than ever right so back in the 90s just being mediocre at recording 
was very difficult because uh, you had to have all this. You had to have all this equipment. I mean, even the shitty equipment, you had to have it. Um, you couldn't just do it on a laptop. Um, you know, yeah, and you had to understand very technical things like tape, uh, which are a lot more difficult than just hitting record on a track um, in a hard drive. So I think that there was a lot more uh, difficulty to just get started back then. Just getting started was a lot harder. Oh, yeah, it's money-wise also. Yeah, exactly. There are just way more barriers. But the thing that I don't think has changed is that to be excellent, amazing, you know, to be world-class, to be one of the best, that's still very, very difficult. I mean, that still is going to take 10 years or something, you know, or more. Yeah, you're probably right. Maybe, it's, like you say, it's easier to be mediocre today. Yeah, and so for yeah. producers that are at that... And look, I think that there's nothing wrong with producers who make their career off of locals or, you know, smaller bands. That's fine. Yeah, I, I don't... I'm not judging. I don't think that the only valuable producers are the ones that work with the legendary bands. But I do think that it will make it harder for people that are not unbelievable at it. And also, though, there's also things that will change about it because now that it's easier to be mediocre um, or decent at it, uh, you're right. There's certain parts of a producer's job that not every band needs. But I do believe that no matter what, the thing that doesn't change is that artists will always need a leader who knows how to capture their ideas, who is outside of their little group. There's something about that relationship that I don't think will go away. No, you may be right. You may be right for sure. Well, I mean, think about the 90s. Even in the 90s, you had those artists like Trent Reznor, for instance, who were their own producers or who were the, their own leaders. Like you always have had that type of artist who uh, didn't really need to go to some huge producer to run the show all they needed were good engineers like that always has existed uh trent reznor being a perfect example in the 90s of someone like that so that type of artist has always existed and i think will always exist but in addition to the trent reznors of the world uh but there will always be bands i think or singers or whatever who need a leader in the studio you know even if they know how to record on their own they they need someone to help make the right decisions yeah you're probably right about that the problem is what i can see maybe in that case is like with recording labels and so on they don't have any money to spend on studios do you see the point I, yes it's like that is a problem yeah my clientele uh, can it be 10 50 years ago when the first time a band If, if they was not like doing a demo tape or anything, like actually doing an album, were paying from their own pockets. And I'm like, but you have a label, and why do you why do you pay it? The label should pay for it. No, we have no recording budget. That forced people, if they have a band, they get the lab, uh, signed with the label and they get no recording budget, and they have no money. They have to record it by themselves. Yeah, that's true. I remember when this like this digital recording came and you know now everybody can do it by, by themselves in their home and many bands did that and I remember the compilation CDs back then from I get from magazines and stuff like that it was a nightmare to listen to 
You have so many bad productions. There was actually, man, that's one of the reasons that I started Now the Mix and URM Academy was because when this whole revolution of digital home recording started and the production started to get worse and worse and worse, um, it was also around the time period where the music industry thought that it was going to disappear. We kind of thought that the labels were all going to disappear and that it was all headed towards, you know, the toilet. And I, I started thinking that somebody needs to show these up-and-comers how to do it properly or we're all fucked um, because this great tradition of great-sounding records in metal was starting to really disappear and um yeah honestly i think that productions are i don't think we're entirely responsible for it but um i think we're part of it i do think that metal productions are starting to starting to get pretty great again um and i do think that there was that time period where it was pretty scary yes i used to get the demo tape from uh, the guitar player in the crown marco his son is 60 years old and he plays in a metal band and they had recorded this demo with his father where all the drums are completely acoustic and you get that feeling of Slayer rain in blood from a 60 year old band from fucking Sweden and I'm like I was so happy when I heard it it's, it's just like nothing is perfectly tight and the guys in the band have invented metal again and when they are fucking angry it was brilliant to listen to. I had to listen to it even two times because I was was happy when I hear it. Well, you know, one thing I'm noticing, too, is that now I feel like it's kind of come full circle. It's been so long now that we have digital recording and plugins and the ability to do it at home. It, and this new technology and this new music industry, it's now been more than a decade. And so I f think that the digital mania is kind of subsiding a little bit to where people are trying to make real sounding records again, at least to a degree. Obviously, it'll still sound modern, but I think that people are starting to value real performances again. I'm seeing it more and more. I actually really do think that production is going to start getting awesome uh, and that we're that we're at the beginning of a newer and better revolution exactly for the same type of reason that you just said what you just experienced i'm starting to notice more and more and more also through our students and through talking to a bunch of mixers who come on now the mix and just i'm seeing it more and more that it seems like people are shifting away from the bullshit of about 10 years ago of replace everything digitize everything it's okay to have a bad recording that whole you know that whole thinking is starting to change i think to where people are actually using the tools that they have uh artistically um yes and I, for me personally i'm the guy i can i can sit down and do 40 takes of a, of a guitar if until it's good instead of oh that's fine enough i edit it and for me it's it's not okay, if you understand what I mean. Some yes. stuff you you need to edit. If you do like a metalcore band, that should be need to be super tight. Of course, you have to do that. But I always try to make sure that the recordings that leaving my studio is performed, not edited. And uh, we get we get some really good people said that we had edited the guitar on Bring Me the Horizon album so good 
but it's not edited, it's performed. And that's why it sounds so good, because we have a good guitar player and we take our time to make sure that we have a good take. That's what I think. It's interesting to me that also, you know, I've heard that also about some vocals. Um, You know, sometimes I hear vocals that people say that's so auto-tuned. And I know for a fact that the singer is amazing and that maybe there's a little bit of tuning, but not what the person saying that sounds so auto-tuned thinks. Like it's not... It doesn't sound good because there's a little bit of tuning on it. It sounds good because the singer is fucking awesome. And there's a little bit of tuning on it just to help it a little bit because there's going to be a million instruments and it needs to all work together. But a lot of people think that if something sounds good and is a sounds like a good performance, that it's because it was edited that way. And I think that that's... Usually not the case. No, no, no. And also, it's like some bands I have here, maybe they are very concerned. Oh, it's not perfectly in tune. And and I, then I normally open up YouTube and I type in Alicia Key, no one. And I play the song for them. And I say, listen to this. This is not one note that is in key. And he have, she have 358 million views and listeners. But the vocals is not in key. You like it because it's a good song and you like her. It's funny. I, I got the stems to a song by that band Muse from about 10 years ago. One of yeah. their really big songs. And I know that a lot of people who listen to them thought that they were the most unbelievable musicians and the saviors of hard rock, all this kind of all this kind of stuff. And so I got the track and I started listening to the tracks. And, you know, there's some autotune vocals. There's some mistakes in the guitar solos not huge ones but just like you know if he's tremolo picking a solo and like playing as hard as he possibly can and you know sometimes the tremolo picking will slip a little but then he'll just keep going and so it just sounds like someone going at 100% intensity and it's not perfect but it's awesome and in the mix you can't really hear that you can't hear those little mistakes but they're definitely in there and uh, I always bring that up when people think that something is something that's awesome is a little too sloppy or or not edited enough it's like look that's not the way great music sounds great music isn't perfect great music feels great and you love the songs that that's what makes it great yeah, but yeah, uh, but it is more or less how I say it. You know, it's like, oh, you're Fredrik Nordstrom, and you're like the founder of Gutterberg Sound. And I'm like, no, it doesn't start there. It starts with a good songwriter. I'm just a part of help. You know, what 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 is an album without a good song? <laughs> good songs. It's nothing. Yes. So okay, so taking that into consideration, your um your priority on performances, uh, I can imagine that the super complicated records you've made, like the Demo Borgir records, that must have been a lot of hard work, especially Death Cult, Armageddon, and Puritanical. That, Like, just thinking about what you're saying now about performances, I can only imagine that records like that with that much detail, like, how long did it take to do Death Cult, Armageddon? Ten weeks. Oh, that's actually pretty fast, considering. But then I, we had double recording for two weeks, so it's 12 weeks, maybe, is the right one, because 
after I went down to Prague and recorded uh, the symphonical orchestra, I had to edit them because, to be honest, symphonical orchestra are fantastic, but they don't understand metal music. And, you know, I was there and I was like, what is this? It's one, two, three, four, bum. No, 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 no. We go wham like this. So I had to sit for a week and cut all that shit together to make it actually work with the mu- music. The guys in the band were so disappointed when I hear it when I, when I come back. Man, I am familiar with that orchestra because uh, my dad conducted the Ingve Malmsteen or orchestral album, and uh, yeah. I went to Prague with him, and he worked with them, and it was the same thing and. I remember Ingve was so shocked and disappointed that, like, you know, like he was expecting one, two, three, four, everyone goes. And that's not how they think. And it was very, very hard. It was a lot of hard work. And then also the fact that he played in E flat. And so all the scores were written in E flat. Man, that. Like, they had such a hard time with the key, whereas for guitar, all it is is, oh, just tune it down, play the same thing, no big deal. But for an orchestral player who has to read something with six or seven flats, it was very, very difficult. It actually, I'm really, really lucky, because I was 17 when I got to see this happen, um, and it really educated me as to how this idea of putting an orchestra with a metal band is it's like a great idea but it's actually a very very difficult fit it's not going to just work uh, you have to really really make it work yeah yeah but it's like when i recorded my first album with my band Dream Evil and i had the Gothenburg Philharmonica orchestra there and mainly for the ballad and uh, i had recorded the demo uh, for that song on a piano that was eight cent too low. Whoops. And it was time to record the album. And I was like, for fuck's sake, the demo is good enough. Let's keep it. And so we tuned all the instruments down to like eight cent. And then the orchestra guy came and I said, this is tuned in one, uh, 432. And they were like, wow, that's not good. Because they have the <laughs> tuning set in their head. But they yep. sorted out after a while, but they have to like retune their minds. I didn't realize that until then. And then the thing is that, yes, they're professionals, so they'll get it eventually, but it's so expensive to have an orchestra too. So you, it's not like you can take five days, um, or I mean, maybe five days you can take, depending, but it's not like you can take 12 weeks like with the band. Like you have to get in and get out very, very fast. Oh, yeah. Because that i mean for people wondering uh i know that i don't know the exact figure just because it's not my business to talk about somebody else's budget on here and i also don't totally remember but i will say that the orchestral budget was for four or five days was tens of thousands of dollars and that's what an orchestra costs yeah, yeah, but it's, there's so many people that have, need to have the salaries and they, they are working their asses off to keep that level of performance because more or less you can put the scores in front of the nose and they're playing it directly, perfectly. For the most part, yeah. Yeah. Especially with music that's written properly for them, like, you know, a soundtrack. I think that the when they get metal music, Oftentimes, it's not properly written for an orchestra. Like you said, like you gave it to them eight cents 
uh, flat or whatever. I know that the Ingve stuff didn't they didn't take into consideration the tuning that it would be very difficult for an orchestra. And so it's not that Ingve should have changed his tuning or anything. If he wants to play an E flat, he can play an E flat. But they didn't realize that okay, so an orchestra and those players are fantastic at what they do, but it's what they're not fantastic at what they don't do. And if you're going to give them something that's outside their comfort zone, be prepared for the you know however much time they need to learn how to do it. Yes. So you already had some experience with an orchestra, though, sounds like, when you went to do the demo stuff because of Dream Evil. Yes, um, but I did Death... No, Puritanical, whatever it's, the full name of that album is. Puritanical Euphoric Misanthropia. Thank you. It's a great name. <laughs> and then we had uh, the Gotham Ball Philharmonica Orchestra in the studio. So I had to learn how to mic this shit up and, you know... And they were also judging me. They came to the studio, they looked at the microphone setup and everything, and, you know, okay, this seems to be serious. And But they didn't realize how hard it was to actually also to play the demo stuff. I could imagine. Yeah, because when I heard the mu- music first time, they were laughing, and then they saw the scores. What was difficult about it for them? They didn't tell me, but I saw on them, and the planned time we had for, like, three hours ended up to be a full day and you know they become grumpy and they was negotiating the the money we should pay them and so on yeah, so okay so i have a question about that because i know that eventually dimu started working with a professional orchestrator he was there the first time also he was there the first time okay what i was curious was i know that sometimes metal musicians will write for orchestra but they won't take into consideration the actual limitations of the instrument that they're writing for you know so they'll write a riff on guitar and then translate it for a horn and not think about whether or not that actually is possible for a horn player (laughs) so yes almost the same as when a guitar player writes something on you know superior drummer for their drummer but it would need a drummer with eight arms you know two heads and nine feet you know to do like that same idea of writing unrealistic things i feel like metal guys will do for orchestral parts yes and they also it's like you know they can play orchestral on a keyboard like you play a piano but that's not how it sounds no you don't have no and they use like a violin section that's one that's one finger that's that that's that section and I put in six fingers. <laughs> and I want this to sound realistic, yeah, but then you need to release five fingers. Uh, and you know, arrange it like a like an orchestra. I think it's like the standard library you get in contact. I have done strings with that that sounds super realistic. Because of the experience I had with this great arranger Gauto Storos, his name is and like these recordings I've done, I realized this is this is how they play. And if you start playing like you're playing on the keyboard, it's not going to be sounds like an orchestra. You need to know how how it works. It's going to make it very difficult for them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you said that when you came back from having recorded the orchestra in Prague, the band was very disappointed. But you yourself were you disappointed? Did you or did you know that this is what's to be expected and I can work with this I just forget what the band thinks for now 
No, I know for sure that I need to edit it. But I, so I said, it's going to be better. I need to just bring it home and sit there on the evenings and do all the edits for this. And it's going to be better. I'm sure about that. And we also had tuning problems on the first demo album. I remember that. So I actually used auto-tune and it worked. The tuning problems, were they from the band or from the orchestra or just combining the orchestra with the band? No, it was the orchestra. They were so tired. So they was out of key. Got it. Yeah. That sounds like quite a potential disaster. Yes. But it was, I don't remember the song. It's one of those kind of industrial songs on that album. With start with the water drops. I know which one you're talking about. I don't remember yeah. all the song names because they're, so, yeah. uh, <laughs> they're so long. <laughs> they're all so long. Yeah, yeah. And so what I did, I actually ran the orchestra through a guitar amplifier. And before that, I tuned it with auto-tune. And I cut it up parts and took out parts and went back and forth. Why did you put the orchestra through a guitar amplifier? Because I wanted a different sound. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, and also it's like, because it's like the auto-tune made the glitches sound and stuff like that. And I want to have it like industrial sound. I remember also recording these drops of water. We spent weeks with that. Just every day we tried out because it's actually from my kitchen in the studio. So we need the water to drop in the perfect timing. <laughs> and Oivin, the keyboard player, he was like standing with that crane every day and try to get it perfect how he wanted it. It could be easy to sample and move, but he wanted to do it like real. And this is why you might have to go through divorces and not see yes. your kids because <laughs> getting the right water drop sound can take forever yes. sometimes. Yes. I, I'm actually, I mean, I'm joking, but I'm not joking. I actually, that is the truth. Getting the art, you know, in addition to getting the skills and um, everything else that you have to do, sometimes the art itself just, you know, it happens when it happens. And that record came out great. It was clearly worth it. I have another question. If you noticed this about orchestral instruments with metal, um, I've had some bands who have really wanted orchestral instruments involved um, because they hear your records and they think it's this big epic thing. And which it is on those records, but so then we end up hiring some strings, and they don't—they're not ready for the fact that, in a very basic way, when you just have, you know, some strings like a quartet and a metal band, the two sounds don't really mix together naturally. No, no. It's almost like when you have clean bass with metal, how it sticks out really weird sometimes. Um, that's why you have to distort it and compress it and do all kinds of stuff to it to make it work um if you just put clean bass in off i mean sometimes it works but most of the time it doesn't i feel like with orchestral instruments sometimes they they just sound weird next to a metal band yes for me anyway it has been like i have to process uh the strings in the mix because it, it just disappear it doesn't blend like you say it doesn't doesn't belong there but when you get it on place it's awesome so you're saying you like different things like putting it through guitar amplifiers do you remember any of the processing ideas that was just for that song but i used a multiband compressor uh, from tc electronics called x3 it doesn't exist anymore which is bad because it was a brilliant product i think it was uh, harsh, made a lot of noises and stuff like that, but it was 
very good for music. Uh, but I stopped manufacturing that. And so, but normally it's like multiband compression, EQ. Uh, I need sometimes some reverb also to make it fits in the music. But And yeah, the multiband compression is kind of very important for that. Makes sense. Um, so question about the mix on Death Cult. Did you automate like crazy in it? Not so much as you uh, talked about in that. That's why I was asking, because to me it sounds like a crazy amount, but then again, it could just be really good arrangement. It's, yes, because that's also one thing I was on. We started with Puritanical. It's like, the, or even the keyboard player. I think he was a really important part to make this album sound like as, as they sound. I t- forbid him to use his the left hand. I so said, you don't use that hand. Use just use your left hand. So we don't. The bass is taking care about the bass player, and we arranged like all that stuff, the synth stuff, and all the stuff like with with the mindset on the vocals. What kind of vocals do we have here? Do you understand? Yes. Yes. We we never like did any crazy arrangement uh, for for uh, synthesizers. Even if you get the IDs, if there were vocals there and some stuff. I remember you talked about how the bass drum raised when the guitar went down, and that's kind of happened by itself. Well, first of all, let me just say that I'm honored that you watched it. Yeah, but of course, I was curious to see how how do you find find it out. But arrangement is very important. This this sounds like a cliche, but I normally say that it's like That's true. <laughs> a good arrangement makes itself. So I'm sitting here right now and have this crazy production. I love it. I think it was was the best album I heard in year years. It's a Los Angeles band called The Offering. And Miss, by the way, say hello to you. Oh, I know who they are. Please say hello back. Yeah, I will. And it's kind of, if you get the mix right, then the song mix itself. But in this case, it's not the whole story because this is insane production. But it's very good. Very, very good. So I can recommend it for you crazy people out there to listen to it. That actually makes me admire the, uh, I guess, the arrangement and the composition on the on Death Cult that much more to hear that it wasn't as much automation as I thought, then yeah, that tells me that the way that it was constructed, it's almost in the DNA of the music to allow the right things to take center stage at the right time. The foundation of the, of the album is like the guitar, bass and drums. It's more or less no automation at all. It's just like find the right levels of everything, find the frequency, that's my job. But also, you know, find a good arrangement for the stuff because it's over it's so easy to over arrange uh music you know the envy thing more is more yes it's not always the truth it's like if you want to have a very good sounding album you need good songs good musicians but you also need a good arrangement which i think is very important and your job to mix the album is will be 10 times easier Oh, well, I mean, a perfect example, I think, of what you're saying right there is those are good players, but the riffs themselves are not crazy. Um, I think that if the riffs were super insane, that it would probably be a lot harder to get that record to sound good. But the riffs, they, uh, you know, they, they're simple exactly where they need to be simple. Yes, and that's all I think, like we're coming back to composition again. That's what I think is like... Like the genius with that band was like they 
were like they have, you have three guys who writing riffs in the band and it's like one of the guitar player he's the more technical guy and the other one is more common in his in his riffing style and then you have the singer who also write riffs but they are more simple which and then you have this excellent keyboard player on top of that they're doing insanely stuff that is great and you combine all these elements and you get this you know do you know how many tempo changes it was on every song it's insane yeah i i believe it back to back to what we were talking about before that it's tempo and uh feel is everything i mean it all starts with that yes and it can't forget the great drummer too you know i feel like oh, that, yeah. that was an incredible drummer as well yeah he is the incredible drummer the drums was actually recorded on puritanical is completely midi but we never touch anything of his hands we just moved the bass drum a little bit you mean he performed it on a midi drum set yes a very expensive midi drum set because it was like this i don't know you know the most exclusive drums i've seen in my whole life almost midi cymbals no real cymbals it's real cymbals yeah so And, but he filled the toms and the kicks with, with, with pillows to make the triggers work right. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you remember, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, The producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mixed the song of the album and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, and Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, This stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one office hours, sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. If any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy slash enhanced to find out more. You know, it's it's interesting. I remember back then. So there were two camps. There were. So we're talking about Nick Barker right now. Yes. Uh, and let me let me pause for a second. Just a few things for people who are unfamiliar. The video that Frederick and I were referencing that I made uh, was called uh, "Metal Mix Hall of Fame: The Demo Borgir Edition," which was I analyzed um, my impressions of 
one of the arrangement mixes from the Death Cut Armageddon album, just if anyone wants to check it out. Um, and then right now we're talking about the drummer, Nick Barker. And Nick, uh, I remember that there were two camps about him. I was always in the camp of this guy is amazing. But there were some people who saw that he played with those MIDI pads and were like, he's faking it. And it's like, there's no way he's faking it. Just watch a video. He's actually playing it. This is just the sound he prefers. That guy is playing that shit. And also his beats are very unique. Yeah, but on Death Cult Armageddon, I was kind of horny to record those toms <laughs> and, uh, and the snare. They're great toms. Yeah, yeah. Like, have an acoustic sound. So on that album, there is 50-50. So actually, I took, you know, the work of repairing the missing MIDI notes because or erase them, actually. That's what I had to do, because I had to put the sensitivity so I get more hits than it, he actually played, and then clean it up so I can use the acoustic tom sound and acoustic snare drum. Can we talk about those toms a little bit? Uh, man, so first of all, I think that I emailed you like six or seven years ago to ask you about those toms, uh, and you actually answered me, so thank you. Um, but I've always thought that those toms... Uh, and you can hear it. I believe that there's a song, track five, on Death Call Armageddon. Again, I'm not great with the song titles just because they're so long. And yep. just like, you know, they're crazy song titles. So I forget them. But there's a song that starts with a drum fill, um, a super fast drum fill. And that's a perfect example of the drum sound on the record. But there's something that you did with his toms that I just thought was... I don't know, it's just legendary sounding, because it, like, you could think that they're fake toms, but they're not, obviously. Uh, you can hear the dynamics in them, but there's something about them. They just sound perfectly epic and perfectly powerful and, like, their own thing. So I just wanted to talk about what actually went into it. So you're saying it's 50-50 the MIDI pad and a real tom or a trigger and a real tom? Uh, it's a trigger and real toms because I recorded the drums from my D-drum trigger uh, so I, I recorded MIDI for the drums and also miking the toms and the snare drum up with real mics. So in the mix I have his acoustic tom that is really nice drums and I also have the sound from my D-drum module I had back then. So the sample itself is just off of the D-drum module? Yes. It's a standard sound. I don't remember the name of it. Do you remember anything about how the tom was tuned or mic'd or anything? I probably used uh, Beta 56 for the toms. I'm pretty sure about that because that's the only set of mics I have that I have six equal. Got it. And then I probably, when I recorded it, I probably cut out some three, 400 uh, hertz and put on some more treble from... from uh, from the console I had. And then probably again in the mix, I used my Lexicon 480 and I used the medium stage hall because I remember that was my super favorite sound from that reverb. And I used a real EMT 140 I had. And uh, probably I cut out a lot of 3400 again in the, in the toms, more bass and more treble and a little bit high mid frequency. And then mix them together on the console. So that's mixed on a console, that album. Did you sum it down to one 
fader basically for per tom? Because I only had 16 outputs on that Pro Tools system. I probably took the toms out on two tracks, yes, and then had the acoustic drums on two tracks also. Got it. Yeah. Wow. So Death Cult mixed on a console. That sounds like even more insane. Yes, but it's like we did uh, we did the Clayman album. We I didn't have 16 tracks in my Pro Tools system because it was so expensive to buy more than 16 tracks. So I had drums was recorded on on analog tape. So and then we transferred the drums to an ADAT machine that where we recorded bass and all rhythmic guitars. And we put away the two inch tapes for the mix so we shouldn't wear them down. And then we transferred like this foundation into two tracks to Pro Tools. So we had 14 tracks to record vocals and leading guitars and stuff that we know that we're going to automate. Got it. And then in the mix, I put on the two-inch tapes for the drums. I had the A that synchronized for bass and rhythm guitars and Pro Tools synchronized. So every time, and we did a shitload of keyboards for that one also that you probably don't hear. That should be a background filler. And I pressed play and it took 10 seconds to, for everything to be synchronized. <laughs> wow. Okay, so you said that the whole, that the production took 12 weeks. Is that including the mix? Uh, yes. That That's actually really fast, considering the amount of stuff on it. Yeah, but as, like for Dima Borger, it's like you have... You have two good guitar players, so the guitar don't take much time. Nick Barker was fast also. We recorded the drums in, in a week or maybe less. Then you need the time, maybe a couple of weeks for the keyboard stuff. The recording of the symphonic orchestra took one and a half day. And then you spend two weeks with the vocals. So there is... And also for the vocals on the Dimmy Borger album, because I didn't want to create all his vocals effect. That goes for all the album I've done. I didn't want to create the vocal effects while I was mixing. I want to create them as we recorded them. So we did new stuff every time. So I just reset everything. And he said, I have this idea. Okay, let's record it. And then we were sitting down, try different plugins, do new stuff all the time to make... It's Otherwise, it's so easy. You set up a, a channel for like this... Uh, spoken words or whatever you can call it, like this effect box. Uh-huh. And you, you just run it through there all the time and you get the same stuff on all all his vocal parts. So I, I always, when it came to these vocal effects, I always find a sound that we liked for that part in that moment and then I print it to the hard drive. Did he ever perform the vocals through the effects or was it always... Yes, yes, many, many times. Did you find that that made it for better performances? Like he did a better job as a vocalist because he had the feel of those effects? Yes, absolutely. But sometimes we couldn't do it because there was a lot of distortion and he got incredible feedback through his headphones. So yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. So we had to like, okay, we can, okay, is this the right pitch? Yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he did it and then he came in and we sitting down and I would put on distortion and stuff like that. And it's so fascinating to me that you did it this way because, okay, so I remember when I was first doing basic recordings with my band. That's why I learned. And we would do things like that too, is uh, we would have a great idea for a vocal and just with an effect, like like kind of in, you know, in a similar sort of style where 
distortion or weird pitch shifting or just who knows, just all kinds of crazy vocal effects. But it was so it was art- artistic. It was part of that actual part. The effect uh, created the feel. It wasn't like reverb to give three dimensionality. It was more like an effect to create part of the feeling or the art of the whole part. And so you kind of have to do it in the moment um, because that's when it's happening. And that's kind of how I learned to do it. And then I took some formal recording classes and people said not to do things like that, record everything as clean as possible. And then you do that stuff in the mix. And then I always found that when I did that stuff in the mix that I could never come back to that original feeling. No. And that's also why I think it's like like the SM7B microphone is so popular among singers because that was a, probably a popular microphone to use to do guide vocals. And then the performance they did in the control room when they recorded the song was so much better than when they put up the uh, U47 to do the real takes. So they actually started using... <laughs> those takes and people see that on videos and think that is a great vocal microphone which it's not I I think uh, I think uh, that microphone is quite bad for vocals I think maybe 57 is better <laughs> I think may- maybe it's just that uh, it hides a lot of what's wrong with singers sometimes um, or maybe you're right that it just ends up being good for guide vocals and sometimes the guide vocals are just the best performance. Yes, I I think, yeah, because it's a radio microphone and I'm instantly hearing when people come in with the SM7B microphone recording. Oh, it's the SM... I hear it. I hear the microphone. Otherwise, that's the only microphone I think I can spot out on a recording. Uh, That's a, a SM7B it's got a very unique characteristic. So did you know that that record was going to get as big as it got in the U.S.? I mean, you had already been doing big records for a while, but I think that that was the first one to sell over 100,000 copies on Nuclear Blast in the U.S. Like, it was a big fucking record. Yeah, I didn't know that. They won uh, the Norwegian Grammy Award with it, and even Norwegian people I speak to that are like, you know, normal day worker. They know about Immeborger in Norway. And I, I just get a reward from Centrum Media when it's happened with 100,000 sold copies. And I was like, wow, that's surprising, my copies. Yeah, and I mean, I remember they went on OzFest and it was like, I know that some people are like, it's not true, black metal, blah, blah, blah. But man, to see stuff that extreme and that, crazy get that big was unbelievable and it was very inspiring also i mean i love the record artistically it's one of my favorite of all time but just the fact also in addition to all that that something that it's it's a crazy album and it's not commercial at all and the fact that it could get that big was it was just really cool to see that you know that that's possible Yeah, but if you compare to the previous album they did, I I might think that, like, if you see how, from a technical, musical way, that album is better. Uh, Puritanical? Yes. I I love that one too, so. Yeah, but but I can see that this album is like... Like we recorded this symphonical orchestra for up the Great of the Apocalypse 
it was like one of the moment, few moments in my life when I really get goosebumps. It was just like I was sitting in the studio tracking this guitar, dun 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 dun, dun, dun over and over again. I was like, guys, what what is this? This is super boring. And they were like, yeah, but there's gonna be keyboards on top of that. What keyboard? Oh, we don't know yet. Oivin is working <laughs> on it. And then he hit he Oivin drop more or less all keyboard recording for that album. So we actually didn't record so much keyboard. We just kind of repaired uh, instruments in the orchestra that we couldn't hear good enough because it's just like five mics and the spot mic was not that good. And we're coming down to Prague and they start playing that amazing arrangement, which it is, that Gauti did. And I was like, wow, what is this? This is awesome. And it's just like my whole body was like goosebumps everywhere. And I just looked at this arranger guy and just thumbs up. And Eivind, he was lying in the studio while they were recording. And he came in and was like, guys, I have a hard on. <laughs> that was a hallelujah moment when we did that. I mean, it was incredible. And I definitely think that it was a groundbreaking moment. Uh, it was, I remember when I heard it, um, my dad's a conductor. And so I went to him and I was like, listen to this shit. The, the, they finally found a way to do orchestra with metal properly. And he just said, it sounds like John Williams. <laughs> but that's a big compliment. Okay. That was his only comment. But um, that was, that's a huge compliment, in my opinion. I thought it was pretty groundbreaking. So let's move on from that. You then started getting some American bands too, like Darkest Hour, I remember. Yeah, they were here. It was, I, did, I didn't see them so, so much. It was in a very hectic period in my life. And I think it's actually a sound engineer that, with the name Arnold Lindbergh, who took care of the, most of that mix and recording, actually. Got it. I remember there was a, I when I was working with Sukov, we spoke to you and you told me that you were doing something for Saab. Whatever happened with that, like that you were doing like super scientific recordings for car companies? No, I, I, I helped. It was actually Volvo. I helped them. Uh, Volvo, okay. Yeah. When they're releasing, they find out that YouTube was way more important than actually buying TV commercial. So they made a lot of commercials on YouTube and they hired local uh, composers to do it and then they find out that the production sucked so <laughs> they send they send the music to me and I had to rearrange stuff and you know find new vocalists for or if there was a vocal line because they needed original music because if you take music from another band it's so expensive got so it so it was yeah so that's what I was doing for them during that period it was very nice for the wallet, to be honest. It sounds stress-free compared to compared to working on something like Death Cult. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It, um, I, the reason I bring that up is because um, lots of lots of our uh, students want to they want to look beyond just working with bands, and they hear about these opportunities for doing commercials or doing production for a company that needs work and but they don't even know where to where to begin so i'm just wondering how did that even how did that even happen it was actually the 
filmmaker Patrick Gulleas, who had done demo videos, my videos, Inflames videos, and so on. He was a friend of that guy who owned a company that do all this production. So Volvo hire a special company to do all these YouTube videos, commercial videos, everything for it. And they are based in Gothenburg. And so he actually, the owner there, contacted Patrick and said, do you know a good sound guy who can sort this out for me? And then Patrick uh, recommended me. So at the end of the day, it, it's exactly like getting any other type of client. Somebody that works with you or that likes your work recommends you to somebody else. And there you go. Yes. And that's what I'm, people ask me, call me, especially like phone book company and all that stuff. It's like, do you want to do commercial? That And I'm like, no, because the best commercial I can do is do a good job. Mm-hmm. That's the only way to get a new booking in the studio is to make the one you're doing right now to make sure that it's as good as possible. I totally agree. And thank you for saying that. It's it's funny. It's like every single time that you work on a project, that is your opportunity to make a commercial for yourself. Yeah, but it's like the most stupid mistake I did back in the days was to interfere with my biggest client. Me and Anders build a studio together. And I, I know this is going to end up with I'm not going to record them anymore. And that's all, also what's happened. But after Clayman, they went to this other guy. And suddenly I was I had so much work because then fans of In Flames that played music realized, oh, the older album sounds much better than the new album, in their ears at least. So <laughs> I had like for two years, the most people who came to me said, yeah, we, we came to you because we heard the new In Flames album. How did you know that going into business with him would mean that they would stop recording with you? Because sooner or later, we're going to be a crash. And it, of it. course, it, yeah. And we built this really nice, super studio. And then In Flames took off. And he was never in the studio. So... Oh, I... So, okay, that's interesting. I thought that you guys had done that after In Flames took off. I didn't realize that it was around before they took off. We were planning the studio... Just when we recorded uh, Colony, I think. Got and it. And then we then we built the studio and they did Clayman and then boom and they out was out touring so much and he was never in the studio. So I can uh, I can see that it felt like a super bad investment for him. I can imagine. Yeah, because the studio was standing there and it's just costing him money every month and he couldn't use it. Yeah. Because he was on tour. He was on tour. I've. Uh always thought that starting a big studio is a bad investment for a professional musician. Oh, yeah. It doesn't seem like it to them going in because it's like, well, look, I won't have to pay for studio anymore. But it's like, well, actually, that's not true. Um, you might have to pay for it all year round, depending on how well it does or, you know, and it costs so much money to get going and the maintenance is not cheap. I mean, there's so much to it. Yes, yes, yes. So, no, no, it was absolutely not a good investment for him, I think. And uh, I had a lot of things to do. So we had like a deal. We had like the studio. We had two control rooms. We had like, the deal was like, you have the control room one for two weeks and I have control room one for two weeks. And he, he had, and I had the smaller control room for two weeks. So we had this equal amount of time in both studios and plan a work around that. And I'm, 
trying to, f- you know, fill the whole studio all the time. But, you know, you don't have so much clients, so you can have two studios running to 100%. And I guess you can't ever really know that a band is going to take off the way they took off. No, no, of course not. So, but, uh, you know, in the end, it's all good. You know, he yes. had this great, great success and they had made shitload of money from the band and, you know. <laughs> and you got a ton of work. So yeah, it all works out. So I have a question. You have had some phenomenal producers get their start by working with you or for you, like Henry Good, for instance, um, who we had on Nail the Mix a couple of years ago with Architects. Um I mean, he's a phenomenal talent, and uh, you know, they, I know a few producers, such as yourself, who have a history for you know their interns go on or their assistant engineers go on to be very, very good. That doesn't always it doesn't always work that way. But do you have a process for training or cultivating your assistants or your interns? Do you, what do you think it is about? how you guys work together that helps them uh you know actualize their potential so much uh it's funny henke he was a student for a long time and we we liked him very much very cool guy and when he went to his university for uh, sound engineering we actually wrote a recommendation letter to the school that if they don't take him in, because it was really hard to come into the school, they are completely stupid <laughs> and talentless. So take him in. And I don't know if that was the reason he came in there. But And then he, the guy who worked for me before, he stopped. And there was a perfect opportunity to hang to jump on, on the train. And he was kind of nervous because that was not either his music. But I was like, you will learn. Also, it's one thing that I probably do different from many producers. I'm very concerned that always, you know, push away the credit for myself and put it, push it to him, the guy. It's like, if I, me and Henke mix an album, it's just like, put Henke's name first, then put my name. Because he need that credit to, that people will trust him. Do you understand what I mean? Yes. Yes. That's really rare, by the way. Yes, I know. I know. <sighs> Come on. I don't going to name any name, but I know people sitting and ghost mixing for, you know, producers here in Sweden. Yes. He didn't fucking do that mix. There was another guy, but he take the credit and he take the money also. And I don't think that's fair. And it doesn't help people to come out. More or less the whole Stockholm scene. I've been in in a studio where a very famous songwriter and producer is sitting and do his music. Do you know what he does? Hmm. He is walking around in his house, do nothing. He has 10 studios where young artists sitting and writing music all day long. And he just go in there and listen. That's a good song. Okay, I take it. They get some credits for it. They get some money for it. But he take the big credit for the songwriting. And... That's how he gained his name. But he actually don't write any music at all. It's other people who write music for him. And I heard that there is more or less the same scenario in uh, the Sherion studio, where you have Max Martin and all this guy. There's a few places like that, for sure. That same story, different players, many times. Yes, and for me, if I was like that, <laughs> Henke should be none. And that should not help him in any way. And I don't think it's fair. Uh, it's like the guy before him, Patrick. This took five years 
at least you know before people even know his name and you know uh, you know start to to trust him do you understand what i mean yes. and it's uh, yeah so with hanky it took long even he's a very good guy but you know the name is not there so that's why i've been very important like make sure that you credit him you know make sure that you write his name and if that's not happened it's it's saying it's like mixed by Fredrik Nordstrom and there is no but Henke was on that one also so that's why it'd be very important for me to help him so what I've learned through running a company is that the more that I empower the people who work for me to own their own ideas and to get credit for their own ideas and I the more I reward them for having great ideas um, with more money or more recognition or whatever it is I can do, um, the more, basically, the more that I allow people to win, uh, the better of a job they do because they're more inspired, they'll work harder, they're more loyal, and your relationship is a lot better. And that has made for some of our employees at URM to be really, really amazing, uh, and to make amazing progress at what they do and to really do some, just some great things. And it was, and I really think that it was through the process of allowing them to take control and to get rewarded for having done a great job. And um, so I think that by you doing that, that right there is a huge inspiration to the guys working under you that if they do a great job, they're, not going to be in the shadows. No, but it's also, like I say, if, if I die and that, that guy's sitting here in the studio and it's like I take credit for everything, <laughs> nobody at the studio dies. Yeah, <laughs> true. So it's good to do that for him, but it's bad for my business, if you understand what I mean. In, in the, in the, when they leave this company, you know. True. But it's that's one thing that has been for me with the recording studio it's just like i preferably don't talk money when we recording it's just like i don't money is something you need to buy food you know buy what you need mm-hmm. and if i have that I'm, i'm fine i don't need you know money on my bank account and stuff like that i i never cared about money it's much more rewarding to have made a really good album that's like when we did the architects album and the guys asked me what do you think about this and i was like i think I used to waiting for the CD to come out so I can take the fucking CD and put it in my car and listen to it. Because I think that album is musically, it's a super album. Yes, it really is. Yes, and that's the music in there. And also it's like when Tom died, I, I was sitting on the motocross tracks with my kid and crying because I was, that that guy Tom, he was such a talent. And then he died only 28 years old and it was just like, It still makes me sad. Well, it's a tragedy for sure. And uh, it it really was an amazing record. And the guitar tone on it is spectacular. And it's a Mesa Boogie amplifier that I hate. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I said, they were like, this amplifier work. And I was like, I tried so many Mesa cabin, uh, heads and I never get it to work. But of course, should we try it? And Yeah, but it sounds good. It sounds good. Dude, it sounds insane. Not just good. It sounds insane. Yeah, but it, that's also, it's like, it's a performance thing. I know that Henke and Tom was sitting for fucking two weeks tracking those guitars. And they worked so hard with the tuning and everything. It's just like, 
it's I, I don't know the word for it. It's completely gay anyway. I know that Tom, Tom was so picky with his guitar stuff. So a lot of yeah, but it's like everybody says it's like oh Mike Amos have a good so good guitar tone, and then he just raise his left hand and wave with the fingers because it sounds good when he play guitar. It's same with Lee in Bring Me the Horizon. Listen to his fucking guitar tone. It's the same amplifier. Take the same sound and play. It's not going to be the same great guitar tone because it's it's in the hands. It makes difference even for heavy distorted guitars. And I'm sure that going back to At The Gates, like, you know, like how we started this conversation, that those part of those guitar tracks, like you said, was one of those brothers is a down-picking machine. Like, I'm sure that that tone is, I mean, lots of people talk about the, the miking technique and all that stuff, but I'm sure that a big part of it is the guy who played the guitar, the end. Yes. You know what gear, guitar amplifier we used for that album? Hmm. We used the metal zone, <laughs> the most hated pe- pedal in the world. Of course. And that was connected to a PV Supreme 160. You know, the old ones with the green oh, yes. stri- striping on. And we had Anders homemade build 2x10 and 2x12 speaker with broken cones in it because they didn't have a grill on the front and it has been destroyed during the tour. That's what we had to work with. And it was actually back then... I put up all kind of mics I had in the studio, and I have learned this, you know, what they call now these days the Fredman technique. But there was a guy who was a producer, local guy, who showed me that because he saw that in a magazine somewhere that somebody used that. And we put up all mics, and we was trying back and forth for two days what mics that's actually sounded best. And then we came to the conclusion for this album, this 257s sounds absolutely best. It's just amazing hearing that the gear is what it was speaking of uh we've been talking for a while i know that it's getting late i don't want to take up the rest of your evening um we just have a few questions from our listeners for you yes if you don't mind i just want to ask you a few of these before we wrap up but on the topic of that album Alan Sasha Lasko is wondering... I recognize that name. Do you? He probably has asked you questions. Do you have a breakdown of the cab slaving multi-amp technique? And also, is Rob being a good little bitch? <laughs> Actually, this is the now these days well-known guitar player Gus G. Back in the days, like with our first album and all other albums we did, we recorded quad-track guitar with... Left and right, one amplifier. Left and right, another amplifier to get a massive tone. But he was so lazy because he's Greek. No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he he felt it boring to record four rhythmic guitars. And I understand that. So I said, okay, let's try to record one guitar, but with two cabinets and two uh, two heads. And I connected, like, through a split box to two amplifiers. But it's, I didn't like that guitar tone. And then record them on two tracks, of course. I didn't like that guitar tone because it was sounded like there were two singers sing at the same time, if you understand what I mean. So I could, took the send from uh, the angle head I used and connected it to return of my 5150. So I had one preamp, two power amps and two cabinets 
recorded these two cabinets to two tracks, and then I took one cabinet like 70% to the left and another one 100% to the to the left. And then we did the second track, we did the same, but opposite to the right. And with that, we get a decent guitar tone. And now we had like a bigger guitar tone and we only recorded with two takes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually how I do it. And I used the one amplifier that I think sounds best for that project we are doing. And then I slave it from the send of the amp to the power amp of another amp. And a different cabinet. I used like a Marshall vintage, blah, 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 something uh, for one. And then I have this old angle with also vintage cabinets. That sounds totally different. And sometimes we choose another cabinet because the cabinets makes a big difference, I think, for the guitar tone. So trying Absolutely. out yeah and i'm i know we have done like this camper presets and stuff like that but for, for my studio i'm like to be honest i think it's it's coward to record line signal even if i do it because it's hand useful sometimes but i back in the days even if i had the like digital recording with two million tracks i didn't record any line signals for the guitar and i recorded Two microphones on one channel because I don't want to have the option later on to choose, you know, sit and mix these two. I want to have it. I want to do it straight off. If the guitar tone is good, it's good. It's not good. Let's do it again and find a better guitar tone. Absolutely. Yeah. And the same thing goes like why we did this with the demo guys. Why we like I choose to print the sound straight off. Do it now. And that was actually an old Canadian producer with name Eric Grief. He's told me once, said, I did an album with him. He's a lawyer today. He's striker's lawyer, I think. Uh, why do it later when we can do it now? He told me. And I was like, yeah, you're 100% right. So do it now. You know, and I think that even nowadays, especially with the ability to redo things, people should try to commit as early as possible just because there is so much opportunity to ruin things or to go down an endless path of of destruction you know with plugins yes it's that much more important to to commit early i think yeah i think that's the right thing to do it's just like do it straight off but now these days i i record the line signal also because of the reason that i that maybe somebody in the band went drunk to the Friday night and went into the live room and kicked the mics and then they record like additional guitar during the weekend and I came back to this coming back to the studio and find out that the mics is standing on the other side of the room and the That's guitar tone is fucked up. Yes. That's happened to me. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Or something broke down and people don't realize that. So then you can actually reamp and save the recording without going back and re-record all the guitars. So that's the reason why I do the line signal. Or i recording a, like a metalcore band with a lot of breakdowns. Then the line signal is very useful to edit the guitars because yeah. this music needs to be lined up. It doesn't sound good enough if, if you don't be what I call a grid hooker and you know start using the grid to actually make music. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So here's a question from Dave Vole. Has the popularity of the coined Fredman technique of miking guitars impacted you to any large degree? And if so, how? Yeah, maybe a little bit. But uh, to be honest, we have done this test several times with several bands to find out what we think sounds best. And we, for those bands, we're always 
come up with a solution uh, conclusion that that 257 sounds best and sometimes i'm adding a condenser microphone and blending in a little bit and you know i switch around between speakers and i always take down all the microphones to make you know make a new setup so i get a different tone because it you just move a microphone a couple of millimeters change the tone of the guitar so uh, but yes, it's. I was a little bit surprising when I saw this clip from uh, Wilkinson Audio that he used my company name to sell a microphone holder. And especially when I get it in my hand, realized their angle was completely wrong. Damn it, Alex Wilkinson, fix the angle. No, Fredman Digital will have one. Okay, for there you, you go. Soon. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was like, why? I tried it out. No, I'm never going to use this because it's wrong angle. And I was contacted by another company that do this similar thing. And they asked actually for permission to do it. And I said, yes, of course. But I then want to have the right angle. So let me know when you have it and we'll help you get it out there i have one here right now i don't know what's happened with the guy who had the company we have him. what's happened with him i don't know if he died or something <laughs> oh, okay we have it soon we have it soon okay question from leonardo ravagnani which is what was it like working with bringing the horizon on suicide season and there as hell they've come a long way and are self-producing now with great success but were they any knowledgeable back then or just a bunch of guys wanting to put heavy songs out but not knowing much about how to do it properly uh how much of the final product did you help mold compared to what they came in with demo wise i think like the two album we did they, you know this is a very developing band i should say to be honest you know going from all his screaming his sound he had back then with his screaming that I absolutely didn't like at all that have become you know groundbreaking and now he sings clean vocals he's just showing you know the development of the band but and to be honest I, when I when I heard the first album I was not impressed at all the the thing that impressed me with Bring Me Horizon was the amount of views they have on MySpace and which was just like Okay, let's book this band because they're gonna co- become big. That was actually the one reason. And uh, this is one of the bands that uh, I didn't realize all the hook lines they had until I saw them live. That was just like normally it's like I pick up hook lines when I'm asleep because hook lines is my thing. I'm a pop guy. So, but. With that band, I missed that totally. That's probably not answer your questions, but <laughs> the band itself became so much better just like every year. And, you know, how they find their path through, through everything. And they're still developing. Yes. I think it's a very cool thing. It's a cool band. I like it. Sounds to me like they always were just, you know, they started where they started, but always were trying to get better and better and better and better. Yeah, but they asked to come to well, me to record because they were Inflames fan. Got it. Yeah. So, but they went far beyond that pretty fast, to be honest. They're uh, huge. So, um, here's one from Alan Van Eloui, which is Hello, Frederick. Firstly, would like to say thank you for joining us here at the URM family. And the question is, would you say age matters with regards to work in an audio environment as far as studio producing, engineering in front of house? I'm 29 this year and still getting my feet wet and I feel old compared to some 
other people I see? Oh, uh, I'm 52. I still get my feet wet sometimes. But <laughs> no, I don't think age matter. I don't think so. It's dedication. It's just like, that's what you need. I totally agree with you. You probably you need some diagnose from the doctor or something like that. When I built that studio where we recorded Slaughter of the Soul, I was recording in my old studio. And then on the evening, I went down and built my new studio. So I worked 17 hours per day, seven days a week. And it finally ended up with me getting some kind of, you know, I get it. I don't know what's happened. But my whole body stopped working. Exhaustion, maybe? Yes. And it's, but you need dedication for it. It's like Robbie, the little bitch, as somebody asked before. He's doing, <laughs> he, he's doing great. And he is smarter than me because he has this dedication. But he know, no, I'm not going to work this Saturday and this Sunday. Because if I do that, I will crash and burn. So I day off. And he's, he's, he's constructing a control room in there next to me here. And it's going to be fucking brilliant, that control room. And he's, I see when he works with his band, he's super dedicated. He's super into it. And I think that's uh, what you need, kind of. More or less now these days, I'm, I'm chasing, chasing uh, the perfect take, if you understand what I mean. I'm kind of, I want to have to record like everything perfect. I want to be old school, kind of. I can do the edit shit also if that's necessary, but I don't see that as an art to make a really good drum sound. So you're still trying to make great records? Absolutely, always. Yeah. Every album has to be the best. That's great. And I, I feel like that, regardless of age, that's what matters, is that type of attitude. Yes. And you know, one of our... Uh, you know, one of the mixers that we're really good friends with... Uh, His name is Billy Decker in countries, has 15 number one hits, and he's 50, I believe, and he didn't really start mixing professionally until he was like 36 or 37. And much of his success really has come in the past five or six years, you know, so in his mid-40s uh, and now into his 50s, and his age hasn't really seemed to matter at all because his attitude is amazing. Yeah, but also, it's like something I've done since I started playing. It's like protecting my ear. Because that's my, what do I say? That's my profession. So I have to save my uh, profession. And I, I never play live without earplugs and stuff like that. That's very important to save your ear, I think. And also, it's like, you know, try new stuff. I know metalheads. If, if metalhead, they are like, oh, they did that album there. Let's go there. And the guy in the studio say, okay, I'm going to try some new things. And he, then the band would say, no, don't do that. Don't try any new things. That's what I've noticed when I do stuff. So I never tell anybody I try new stuff here. I just do it. Because if you cannot try new stuff, then you cannot develop. And that's why I'm like, when I'm mixing, I'm, okay, I used that snare drum on the previous album. I'm not going to use it again. I'm going to try some new combinations here. I'm going to try some new combinations. And if I do triggering tr drums, for example, and uh, especially for like toms and snare drums, uh, try new plugins for the overheads, you know, try new stuff all the time. Try, uh, let's do this instead. Because it's so easy. That's what I said in the beginning. I seen some producers. It's just like I heard a band from Sweden, the new album, mixed by somebody not far away from here. And it took me five seconds. 
okay, that's that. That's the guy. And I talked with the guy in the band later on, as we are friends. And I said, you went to him? Yes, I, uh, I heard that straight off on that snare drum. Because he used the same snare drum every fucking time. And I think that's not good for him. And I don't think it's good for the band. And I had the same discussion with another very famous musician. And he felt the same thing. It's not good for production as a whole either. No, 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 it's not good for anybody. Yeah. Because it's like he said, like they had to put like a promo package together for a tour. And that tour had three bands. And the, the same guy had recorded and mixed their albums. And he realized, oh, everything sounds the same. And that's why I'm like, I'm doing Hammerfall album now also at the same time. And he asked me, uh, are you going to use anything from the old mix? Absolutely not, I said. Because... It's like you writing the same song two times. Is that fun? No, and it's not good for your album. So I always start fresh with everything. That's I think is very important. And uh, stay away as much as possible from like templates and that kind of stuff. I oh I use that EQ settings for the bass drum there, and I use that sample for that album, and it sounds awesome. Okay, I use it again. Okay, but don't do that. Try new stuff. You know, one of the things that I think is, you know, it's human nature. And I'm sure that as we get older, you know, and we are creatures of habit, the, our habits get that much stronger and that much more reinforced. So if we get into the habit of using the same thing over and over and over, and we reinforce it over and over and over, our willpower to find new things is going to get weaker. And I think that's the problem with age, not ability because actually the older you get i think with music the more potential you have to do greater work i know for instance in orchestral music my dad's world that people in their 50s and 60s are considered in their prime more than the 20 year olds way more like like conductors they're not considered great until they're in their 50s or 60s generally that's you know that's when all their experience and their skill and maturity can really come out. So I think with production that as long as you don't allow yourself to get stale, that age is actually a benefit. Yeah, I can feel that. I also feel like the pressure of doing a job uh, is not that hard now. 50 years ago, I can actually, if it was a, I can actually, because I put myself under such high pressure of performing that I could actually puke because it was, you know, I have to fix this. I have to fix this. But now I have more experience. I I easily, you know, attacking stuff and you make it works as I want to hear it. So, yes, the age is actually, yeah, it's for a benefit. I think so. As long as you keep yourself, you know, healthy and all those things, like you don't let. So I think that as you get older, you have to obviously adopt, change your lifestyle some. You can't do the same things. Like you can't drink for five days straight like you did when you were 20 and then expect to be productive. So you have to obviously behave in an age-appropriate way. But if you behave in an age-appropriate way and your maturity is there and your experience is there, you should be a lot better at it now than any time before, at least what I've noticed. And 
I got to say that also for me, as I get older, the stress and the pressure of everything I do is a lot easier to deal with for sure. I totally agree. Yeah, but it's also like now I find like new partners. I have a, a guy up here where I'm sitting. They have a there's a lot of like production studios up here, and I'm I'm up with them on the evenings when I should actually be home. But I, I'm up there with my acoustic guitar and we're sitting and playing and making music. And it's like the first time I was there, there was a guy coming in, and we're sitting and jamming with acoustic guitars and bass and stuff like that. And you know creating music and this guy coming in and saying you know what guys this is the first time to the young guys he said this is the first time i see you actually smiling in here you have fun and i had a great fun and i they are 25 years younger than me but i bring my experience there and you know for them it's also a release so i'm up there a couple of times per week and we just see it take the guitar and playing some stuff and they're like oh that's awesome because of my experience but I, f- I feel the pressure because they want to make the success but it's like my age with the young guys and the p- <laughs> stress release a little bit and they do great stuff sounds like a great combo yeah yeah we have a lot of fun I love to go there it's just like uh, coming home 12 o'clock in the night with a big smile on my lip and fuck that was awesome nice this is yeah this is music what it's about to have fun that's also easy to forget you know the fun part it's like i have a son he's uh he's 16 years old now he has you know he ride motocross and he was second in european championship and he was uh, uh, like youth national champion in sweden and then he decided to take the final step to go to uh, like to get the elite license to ride the highest series and then i saw on him you know he he don't have fun and i was i have to stop here now you know why are you doing this you talked about it you know you're putting too much pressure on yourself you do this you forgot what it was all about it should be fun take it easy it doesn't matter what happened today make sure you have fun and It's very important, also with music. <laughs> and with that, I think that that's a great note to end this on, uh, because what that's a great way for people to remember this podcast, because I agree that if it's not fun, why are you doing it? There's really no reason. I mean, that part of why we do this and we work so hard is because we love it, and there's a deeper kind of fun in it for all of us, and, you know, it's easy to lose that if you're not careful. So yes, Frederick Nordstrom, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the podcast. I hope you get something out of this. Thank you. It was very nice actually to have some tech talk. (laughs) It's always fun. The unstoppable recording machine podcast is brought to you by hairball audio for nearly a decade. Hairball Audio has been helping musicians and recording studios improve their recordings by offering high-quality outboard recording equipment in do-it-yourself kit form. Check out the full line of compressors, mic preamplifiers, and do-it-yourself parts at hairballaudio.com. Hairball Audio. Do it yourself without compromise. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Sure Legendary Microphones. Cutting edge wireless systems, premium earphones and headphones. Sure, the most trusted audio brand worldwide. For more information, go to sure.com.
to ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit URM.academy and press the podcast link today.